Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John McMahon, and my special guest today is Andy Price of Artisanal Ventures and Artisanal Talent. Andy started his career in recruiting almost 30 years ago. He's still heavily engaged and invested in the software recruiting industry. He recently used his vast experience in the software industry to create two companies that complement each other. First, Artisanal Ventures, a venture capital platform that invests in and supports high-performing clients by tightly working together with his second company, which is Artisanal Talent. Artisanal Talent is an executive search firm that specializes in B2B software and infrastructure. And Andy's two companies connect capital and talent with brilliant founders to help them build iconic software companies. Andy's invested in many big winners along the way, including Abnormal Security, Snowflake, DocuSign, MuleSoft, Confluent, and Amplitude. Welcome, Andy Price. How are you, man? Thank you, sir. I appreciate the kind introductions. Great to be here this morning. <laughs> good to have you and good to see you again. Hey, Andy, let's start by telling us why you started Artisanal Ventures and Artisanal Talent. Thank you for asking. Yeah, it was a funny story. I uh, <clears throat> had a very close friend of mine who's far smarter than I am tell me that I was a total idiot. <laughs> and I was running this big search firm or kind of co-leading it with, with, a, with a couple of partners. And he said, you know, you spend all your time on these questionable companies. 80% of your time goes to questionable companies. And then you have these snowflake and DocuSign things. Why don't you just spend all your time on them? Mm. And the honest to God truth is I'd love to say I was a genius with this revelation, but it was a good friend of mine telling me I was doing it wrong. That's why you have good friends that can give you really honest feedback. Absolutely. Right? You got to surround yourself with truth, te- truth tellers. <laughs> yes. Exactly. So what happened was I went back to my partners, literally that after that holiday, I said, guys, if we don't, focus on building more octas and more snowflakes. And we had these amazing clients, but you just didn't have the time to drill into them and spend all your time on them thinking that, Hey, if we invest in this company, we're going to make way more money doing that in a tax efficient way. than if we do 85 million searches for companies are going to get sold for scrap or go out of business. And so I said, we should restructure this thing and, and actually make it a venture platform. They didn't, didn't agree with me. And that doesn't make them anything but the amazing people that they are. We're still all good friends, but I just said, Hey, this is, I got to go to a different path. So I set out to learn. I wanted to be the dumbest guy in the room for, and I am often the dumbest guy in the room, but I really wanted to be sure of being the dumbest guy in the room. So I went over to Red Point and worked for Scott Rainey and Satish mm-hmm. and those kind of people. And then also with uh, Volpe and Danny Reimer and all these kind of people, Jan Hammer at Index Ventures. So I basically split time between the two venture firms, just soaking information for in one case, almost two years. And it was a great experience. So after that started artisanal talent, the idea that you'd have a search firm on one side, a venture firm on the other side. And the last thing I'd say about these things, unless you want to go into more detail, is that I feel like any search firm that's in the venture ecosystem should be thinking about the company as, okay, how can I contribute to the venture's success? As opposed to just, let me go send these guys a contract, 100 grand, 150 grand, 200 grand, whatever the contract is. And then I'll move on. The search will be over and we move on. That's kind of silly. It's wasteful. Why don't you really put your hands all over the company and have true alignment with the founders where you're saying, I'm here to make you, to give you the best possible chance for success. And I'm going to participate with that success and put my money where my mouth is. And I think when you talk to the execs out there and they know your objective is to invest in the companies, they take you more seriously because they know you're in it for something bigger than just a simple transaction. And that was the sort of idea between all behind all of this. And then you're in it for many different stages of the company also, not just the startup phase, you know, but you're in it for, you know, product market fit, the deal stage, the scale stage, and, you know, the the maturity stage also, when you do, when you look at it from that viewpoint versus like you said, just place in a body and then you're off to the next company, but you have real, no real interest in the company itself. That's right. 
you know, we still like when our clients go public, we still think of them as our companies like Jay Krebs. I still think of Jay Krebs. I'd crawl through fire for him. Sloopman and the founders of Snowflake and Spicer crawl through fire for all these people, even now, well after the IPO. Yeah. Now, when you think back 30 years ago, what one or two things, you know, have changed the most in the recruiting industry? It's a good question. First of all, there are 5 million new recruiters, which is kind of fun. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you can picture this, this orc army from, you know, middle earth kind of descending on an, a smallish industry at the time. And now it's a huge industry. And it, obviously with a huge industry growth that we've had in the last 20 years, um, you know, you've, you've got a legion of recruiters, which is good because the ecosystem needs recruiters. I think what it needs is more high quality recruiters, but there are plenty. And so I think the industry's changed from that point of view. And I think it's also changed that, you know, you have a lot of niche players now, um, used to be just these big gigantic things like Hydric and struggles and court fair, and they're lovely, but right. you have a lot of specialists now, which I think is really, really smart because I think the industry is moving that direction. And so I think the industry is growing up and becoming more sophisticated around verticals and specific functional areas and becoming specialists in these areas. I think the industry forced that change. And I think it's happened, which is great. Give us, give us an example of some of the verticals that you're talking about. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> like uh, a good friend of mine named Michelle Garland, I'll call her out. She's just a lot of fun. She was a partner at Diversa Partners and she spun off to do healthcare recruiting. She said, all I want to do is healthcare. I don't be pulled into anything else started her own firm just to do healthcare as a vertical. You have millions of fintech uh, vertical kind of players. You had a bunch of crypto recruiters. And unfortunately, I think that that's not going so well right now, but I, you know, who knows? It probably will come back. And then you have the B2B players like us and, and, um, and Cole Group and other players like that. So I think that the industry has created this, um, not fragmentation, but I'd say orientation around specialists. And it can get even more granular than that, where people are in B2B and they're only in enterprise software and they're only in sales, right? right. So it can get pretty granular from what I've That's seen. exactly also. right. You're exactly right. Yep. And then Andy, for everything that has changed, you know, what, what do you think has stayed the same about the industry? Well, I think the industry still has a fair bit of skepticism on it, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, if you, I used to kid people, I'm not sure where we're ranked. It's like, you could think, you could think of mortgage brokers and lawyers, and then, you know, get down the list and then maybe recruiters were at the bottom of the list in terms of, you know, who you wanted to talk to because the industry got spammed a lot. When you're an exec sitting there trying to grind through a business, you know, through you grind through an, an up or down economy and you've got a 14 hour day, the last thing you want to do is get distracted by some recruiter calling you for some random topic. And I think that's, that's actually been a problem for our industry for a very long time. You know, when you call an exec, you need to actually have your, you know what together. Uh, they need to know very quickly why you're calling them and why they should take your call, no matter who you are. It doesn't matter what kind of name you have in the industry or brand or whatever. You need to be really crisp. And so I think <clears throat> that what stayed the same is I think there are still a lot of recruiters that think of this as a sales business, when in reality, it's actually a highly consultative business done right. And I think that's, that's something we all need to do better uh, with, which is, being super intentional, being super targeted, really understanding your client, treating the conversation like you're you're advising someone on something as opposed to selling it to them, if that makes any sense. No, it does. In fact, that leads to my next question, which is, and if I, I've experienced this, which is why is it that you think the majority of search firms don't take the time to properly match the candidate to the job position and the job demand? So, I've basically, if people have called me up, yeah, I want to be a recruiter and I've given them an opportunity. I send them my, you know, demands on the job position and then they send me a candidate and I have to call them up and they ask like, how does this person possibly match the profile that I sent you? <laughs> and right. I gave it to them and they still didn't match the person. You know, it's, it's this sort of the idea, there's an old term called book and bill. And, you know, a lot of people will just, all they want to do is a lot of activity. And they forget that when you confuse activity with progress, you just end up setting yourself backwards and you end up costing yourself credibility. And that's the opposite of what you want with everybody. You want the executive population to say, hey, this person's calling me, I better take their call, A. And B, when you talk to the clients, the clients need to say, you know what, this person really cares about what I'm doing specifically and why you know, I should do X, Y, or Z, but there's some investment in that uh, advice or that point of view. It's not coming out of, you know, a random place. And I think what's happened is the industry is so transactional still. And, you know, we, we still, as a search firm, we, we, we want to do better every single day. I mean, we have a whole company full of people that want to be better every single day than they were the day prior. And I think a lot of recruiters feel that way. I just don't think that they, 
or the orientation is not right because the industry is largely driven by business models that are flawed where they're really labor arbitrage businesses. So you go and you sell a contract and you sell a service. How do you deliver that service at the lowest economic cost is the objective of most of the search firms out there because they go, okay, if I have a 22-year-old that came out of whatever college, I can throw them on the phone, give them a script that's one paragraph long, probably incoherent, and I can give them a target list of candidates to go call. And if they hit a few of them and the candidate's interested in talking, great. The problem is, is they don't realize that when you're in that fee-for-service mindset, you end up building a lot of questionable cost into your business. And so there, it ended up being about how do you feed the beast? And so you just have to throw lots of volume. So the volume orientation is what creates noise when what you're really looking for is signal. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I want to flip my last question around and ask, you know, why is it that you also think that the majority of companies, not recruiting companies, but companies that you would recruit for, they don't take the time to understand the exact job skills and knowledge that's required for the position that they're going to ask you to fulfill. Dead on. That's dead on. Well, that's part of the role. That's actually one of the main roles of a good recruiter is to say that you just push back on your client and say, hey, you think you want to eat bananas today, but is that really going to give you protein or is it just, you know, overload on potassium? You need potassium in your diet, more potassium, or do you need, you know, red meat and some protein? And so you really need to be able to present to your client in a non-threatening way hey, you know, you're thinking about this way, but you need to expand your thinking or you need to narrow it. Most often you're actually trying to convince founders to narrow their thinking versus widen it, as you just alluded to. You know, you really want them to be specific. Hey, I want to get this kind of fish. This kind of fish only swims in these reefs and I have to jump in the water and I have to get this particular species as opposed to, hey, let's just go fishing. And a lot of founders just don't know any better. And so if their VCs and their board aren't saying to them, hey, be targeted, be intentional, that's a real miss. And that's unfortunately too often the case. You have a lot of VCs out there that really aren't operators that don't really, they'll throw out a few sound bites that they've heard in their, whatever their latest conference or their latest get together and latest mixer or whatever, that's kind of the, the advice of the day, even if it's not right, God bless them. And so what you have is you have a lot of churn with the founders in terms of what's going on in their mind. And I think if they have any recruiting partner that can't credibly help them build a thesis on who do they need to go hire and why, what, and what, how do I actually interview someone versus talk at them for an hour, which most founders unfortunately would be inclined to do because they're used to selling something, you know, they're used to selling their vision. So they can't help themselves. They get on these conversations with candidates. They should be evaluating them. All they're doing is selling them and they don't learn. So they're not actually mapping their own needs against this candidate's, you know, skill sets. And I think that's a real gap. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And you just recently posted something that kind of fits into this, which is where you said too many VCs and founders are overly obsessed with people with, you know, that come from big brand resumes. Yeah. You know, and that goes to your point where they're not matching the job position and the stage of the company, which has a whole nother set of demands on that person versus whether or not somebody that's coming out of Salesforce or Oracle or ServiceNow can actually meet those demands or ever has seen that type of an environment before. Exactly. Yeah, and if you look at the sales leaders out there right now that are really crushing it and you go, okay, well, where was that person before? They're not coming from celebrity places. And if no. they were, it was off-Broadway. Like, let's take Friday from Slack. You know, I kind of grew up with Bob. I've known him forever. He's a lovely guy. And look at the results of Slack. You know, grew over to, to over a billion in revenue and got acquired for 28 billion. And he was sort of doing Asia pack for Salesforce off the radar. And they took a bet on the off the radar guy. You, you know, look at our mutual friend, Adam Aaron. So what was he doing before he turned Okta from, you know, kind of just this, what the heck is single, single sign on to this $350 million public company right. that ended up being worth, you know, tens of billions and an icon. He was a regional guy, right? Prior. I mean, you know, he, he was a totally obscure guy. If you think about Degnan, obviously is our favorite example. He came out of total yes. He was running, he was kind of the sales guy for some company that none of us ever remember. Avexa. Avexa. <laughs> Yeah, he went from two, you know, a number of years at EMC over to two years at Avexa. But that transition did get him from the big company into the small company yes. where he really had to learn how to sell enterprise software in a really difficult environment. And I think that's those two years or three years there. I can't remember exactly how long he'd been there, but that really made Chris. It really helped him. I mean, he's a very coachable and adaptable guy, but in the beginning, that's what really helped him at Snowflake. Oh, yeah. I feel like people have to get their teeth kicked in and be humbled. They can't just go from these gigantic brands where <clears throat> I would not say they're order taken at all. I think that would be disrespectful to my many friends in these large brand companies. But 
I do think, you know, the school of hard knocks, you have to at least done something really hard and appreciate what hard looks like and actually like doing hard things to be right for a startup. Cause they're really hard. People go, Oh, that's glamor. And I can make a bunch of money that I have no idea what they're getting themselves into. <laughs> I call it scrounging. Like if you've never had to scrounge before for resources, for anything that you can imagine, because you're <laughs> surrounded by all great resources in these big companies, you get into the small company, there's no expense reports. There's no laptop. There's no help. You're going to, you know, lick your own stamps if you want to mail anything. You know, you're doing all your emails, setting all your own appointments, all your own travel. All of that falls on you, nobody else. Oh, yeah. And you got to learn how to scrounge. And if yeah, you can't like do that, you never face that, you're in exactly. trouble. Think of yourself as like foraging around a very sparsely populated forest. And if you don't find the food, you die, you starve. I mean, that's what right. startup sales execs are doing. Yeah. Hey, one other thing that I've seen in the past, I didn't know if you were going to mention this, that's really seemed to have changed is I've always told my sales leaders, like, you have to own the recruiting process. You cannot delegate it to anybody else because you're recruiting your own team and your team, believe it or not, is going to determine your own success and your own career. And what you're seeing a lot these days is where sales leaders in these companies are delegating recruiting to HR and other recruiting functions inside the company. Huge mistake. Have, have you seen that? Oh yeah, totally. Totally. It's actually a huge mistake because a, nobody ever invests heavily enough in HR to do it successfully. You know, as you know, one of the great CEOs of all time, Mr. Slootman, you know, he makes his execs and did the same thing that serves now. The execs are in charge of their own recruiting. The HR team was sort of a central function, as you know, it was more administrative and compliance and comp and benefits. He kind of, um, it had that sort of orientation. And I love the idea of building your own internal development, talent, kind of talent acquisition muscle. I think that's a really wise move, especially early in the company to have your own on-site recruiters, but the sales leaders need to drive that process and own it and touch every candidate. I really believe that. Um, if they, cause you know, if you think about a lot of these sales execs go sideways because they, what happens is the business is going well, then the economy gets a little questionable like it did last in a couple of years. And I won't name names of a really legendary founder actually called me a couple of months ago and said, Hey, I love my sales exec. We've doubled or tripled the company every year, but I look across the sales organization and I think half of it is good. And the other half is not good. And sort of, you, you could feel that the sales leader got away from owning the DNA that he really wanted across the board. And as you well know, you're only as good as your weakest sales region or your sales rep or your sales process or whatever. And I think what happens is when these founders, when these, I'm sorry, these sales leaders move away from truly owning that DNA, uh, you know, development, or let's say consistency, um, you know, then I think what happens is you end up with inconsistent talent across the board and things start to vibrate. And why do you think that changed? Do you know where, where that started? Why that mentality of I'll let somebody else do my recruiting? No, I think what happened in the go-go era is that you, everybody had so many resources. You could just buy more people and just say, you know what? I'm going to throw a bunch of people at that problem. So, okay. I need to recruit a bunch of people. Okay. I'll just have so-and-so I'll hire this person, that person. You have, you have entire sales teams with their own sales recruiting apparatus. Um, and I think what's happened is it was just sort of a, unlike the foraging, we, we had millions of VCs, you know, throwing capital at just about anything. And because of that easy money environment, I think people got lazy, honestly. I think that's what yeah, it's also why they burned a lot of money too. When you, right. you recruit a bunch of C's and D's, you're going to burn, burn through a lot of money. And, and they did a lot of companies burn through so much money. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And you see a lot of sales leaders, when they fail, you look back and you kind of do a forensic view and you go, all right, what happened? Most often it has to do with, they couldn't hire people. They didn't have people from their own network that understood how they operate or how they think or whatever. And I think that's where you see these random sales execs pop in from, you know, random companies. You don't see any great companies in their backgrounds. You have to wonder who are they going to be able to bring with them? And is that a quality group or not a quality group? And I think that's a big determinant of success or failure with sales leaderships is the quality of the network that you're able to hire. Because if you have to, if you don't have that network that can follow you, it doesn't have to be 5,000 people. It has to be a good core, as you know, you're going to stall out and you're going to, and you're going to end up ramping up even the recruiting costs, you know, end up burning a bunch of capital. And so it ends up being a really inefficient way to build a sales organization. I think, and I think founders get frustrated with that. And so the recruiters, a lot of times they don't ask the candidate, 
And the founders don't ask them, they forget to ask them, hey, who are you going to bring with you? Let's just start to visualize how you're going to go about building your talent under yourself. And that's, that's, where, the, that's where the really hard conversations get. Yeah, I really want to emphasize this point for the, for the people listening is, you know, when I've recruited sales leaders at almost any level, I'm not only looking, you know, can they sell and can they manage? But the biggest question I have is, who are they going to bring? Who are they going to recruit? And if I don't really think that they're going to be great recruiters, I'll do myself a favor and go find somebody that's a much better recruiter. Yeah, love it. But to your point, it is a sign of whether or not, well, we can flip it around because I've had many different sales leaders and a lot of them can recruit. And then you're always finding the one or two people that absolutely can't recruit, which almost says I'm late on this message here because people are sending me a message from the outside world that they don't think my leader is good enough to work for right because if you're going to go to work for a sales leader you have to believe that they're going to get you to the next level and if you don't believe that they're going anywhere or going to get you to the next level if you're an a player you're just not playing absolutely right yeah i mean you could draw all kinds of metaphors you could just say okay you know go back to world war ii would you follow the general that kept losing battles or would you want to say i'm going to go to so and so i don't want to be part of the army you know storming the philippines poorly i want to be the marines taking island by island and we're going to follow that person to the end of the earth because i know that they've got their you know what together and i believe in their approach to the role and as you know that's what happens with sales execs they have to believe in how you're going to orchestrate the function and take care of them at the same time hold them accountable and most important win Salespeople want to win yeah now if we made it simple and said there were only four phases of growth to a company you know the product market fit deal stage scale stage maturity stage how should or how do you consult companies that they should hire differently at each stage it's a great question. I actually think that there's more continuity and more in common with early stage sales leaders than late stage sales leaders. I think the question is, how do you apply? You know, there's this old term, how do you apply the horsepower to the road? Do you have an 800 horsepower car? Can you actually translate that to the road? And in this case, you know, you kind of look at um, <clears throat> the early stage, you know, you'd say, well, a lot of these people just go, look, I just need to get somebody. I need to get somebody that can take me from zero to $10 million. And then the presumptive next thought is then I can fire them and hire the next leader. That is so flipping naive. It's shocking. Yes. What happens is, guess what? The sales exec comes in, they own half the employees, right? So they, they're going to build a team of a 50 person company. You might have 25 people in sales. That leader takes off. Guess what? Now you've got 25 other people that are questioning whether they should be there. And then there's a total disruption, right? Heading into a financing, you missed the quarter. You can't get finance. So people don't think through this one concept, which is that, Hey, you want to know that, yes, the person can do the role in the next 18 to 24 months, 100%, but they can, quote, unquote, presumptively go a lot farther. What does that have to do with what? Well, the role is going to change from being player, coach, going, kicking down doors, getting orders, and you have to know the customer and, you know, go, go actually lead from the front and sell. And then what's going to happen, though, is you need to weave in enough process that people aren't, you know, completely randomly operating. And as you know, that consistency of sales methodology is the difference between great companies and average companies, typically, at least in my view, over the arc of time. And so you have to have people that are process oriented or process familiar, or at least appreciate the need for enough process that it's not a totally alien thought when you start to hit the scale, right? So I've seen these companies go from zero to 100 million, and then all of a sudden they go, oh my God, we didn't do any instrumentation. <laughs> it's like, right. Oh, there's no instrumentation. Yeah, we're using spreadsheets. So, how are you gonna, do you even know what Salesforce does? You ever seen a CRM? I mean, you kind of wonder, like, all right, we're going to spend the next year instrumenting because we can't find our quarter. We can't plan, we can't forecast. We don't know what pipeline metrics should look like. We don't know who our customers are. We have no continuity with the customers. So, you have this. You know, you're like, well, why, why didn't you take a few minutes out of the day and say, yes, I left selling, but if we don't weave in some instrumentation and process, then we're going to hit the wall. And that's the problem. The, 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 the lack of foresight and the ability to see around the corner and what's going to be important in 2024 and what's going to be important in 2026 and start to build those muscles early and often. You don't have to you know, subordinate selling, which is the mission critical work from zero to 10, as we know, or you're dead. Um, you don't have to subordinate that entirely just to go all in on process. What I'm saying is you're just weaving it in so that the company doesn't get disrupted over time. Like if you look at the most 
amazing stories. You know, Ron, let's take Ron Gabrisco over at, um, they ever at uh, Databricks, you know, that guy was there when basically it was nothing. And he went all the way to three or 400 million and they brought in Kofoid and there was no disruption there. Mm. Total continuity. And Ron stayed on because he compliments the new president. That's what you want. You don't want people walking out the door and taking half the employees with them. You want optimal continuity there. Yeah, there's something else that also happens when the first person walks out the door and takes 50% of the employees with them. The next person comes in and wants to bring their own people in. So then there's another like 25% of the people that wash out because they say, I don't really belong here. This new leader doesn't want me. They're bringing in all their own people and it's time for me to exit stage left. Yeah, look at how many great companies start to hit the wall and vibrate because of lack of organizational continuity. I mean, it's a real, it's a, it's a recruiter's dream. The problem is it really hurts the company. So if you're totally. a company, you gotta go, hey, let's minimize the brain damage of these transitions. Yeah. And what effect, negative or positive, have the giant tech companies, Google, ServiceNow, Oracle, Salesforce had on recruiting for software startups? Honestly, I don't see, I think of them as inventory. You know, you can find gems in a lot of those companies, but I'm, let's be honest. I mean, I love Google. Everybody loves Google, but, but I mean, who, you're really going to go to Google and expect someone to work in a startup from Google. <laughs> right. Just, you know, they don't have to work. They're riding their bikes around campus, the cute little yellow bikes, and they kind of show up for a meeting here or there. Now that's changing under sooner. I think he, that guy's really, he's trying really hard to affect culture change. But if you think about meta, you're not going to go to meta to look for talent. You might go there to look for engineering, but I don't think that they have, you don't look for Oracle at Oracle for anything. I'm sorry. I hate to say that. I think there are probably listeners on this podcast. I don't mean to offend any of you, but if you're still at Oracle, it's because you just, the world kind of passed you by and maybe you, that's fine. It's great. There's a role for Oracle in the world, but I think the, um, the, the, they don't really affect the startup ecosystem because there are enough billion dollar, $2 billion companies. And everybody wants that company that went from small to large recently and then Salesforce and ServiceNow definitely fall into that bucket. So you'd say, okay, are these people ready to go do another rodeo? And that's a big question mark. But I think you kind of look at those players, the ones that just recently ramped in the cloud era. You don't really think about these consumer things like uh, Meta, and you don't think about the old guard like IBM and Oracle ever. No, no. The only time that I've been able to find some real talent in those companies is typically people that got out of college. They're super well-trained at some of those companies. Yeah, sure. Within their three or four years, they stepped up to the next level of, let's say, inside sales. And now they're getting to the point where they've been there another two years. And now they're saying, you know, I think it's time for me to go do something else. And sometimes you can take those people and stick them in a territory or an account and they can do, they can do fairly well, especially if they're smart and they're really hungry, really determined to succeed. Well said. I would also say one thing I'd missed out on the, you know, when you look at Google, the GCP crowd is pretty interesting. There's a lot of talent there. So, so you have to really be specific about where you're going within these large firms to find specific talent. I would say that there's world-class engineering um, at Meta and there's world-class sure. general population talent over at GCP. I think that TK has done a good job building up a pretty interesting business with a lot of talent there. Let's come back to recruiting sales, but I wanted to ask you, you know, cause you've been around, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in the software industry, not the recruiting industry, but the software industry? Sure. Well, obviously the biggest ones have been business model changes where you had, you know, you had obviously cloud pricing, right? And then you thought about per seat, but it was really cloud and let's rent the software versus buying. And then that's why Siebel and these things just kind of, you know, went away over time with the old uh, pricing schemes and the, and the on-prem architecture. So you obviously saw this move to cloud and then the, the, the ratable pricing. And then now we're seeing obviously consumption everywhere. And that's a really interesting change. And that's really complex. So I'd say those are two key things. Business models have changed and become a lot more complex. Used to be, as you know, you'd sell a big ticket thing for a million bucks and then you get a 15% maintenance, right? And that was pretty formulaic. And that wasn't yes. that complex. It was a tough sale, but what you got was a big ticket thing and you move on million dollar plus. It was incredible. But and by the way, a lot of companies wish that those days were back because million dollar sales obviously cover a lot of a lot of inadequacies, right? right. And so I think that um, the other thing that's changed is I think that the industry is way more mature. When I was coming up, it was all about like NVIDIA and LSI logic and Intel and all this stuff in the 90s. And then you had the network equipment companies connecting everybody to the internet. And then the software industry really started to explode, as you know, really around like the late 2004. 
2005 to 2012 kind of timeframe. It started to arc into this ASP cloud world and then really exploded in 2010 to current day. So the last 13 years, industry's gone from maybe companies you would think of that you count on two hands to tens of thousands. So the, the industry is complex. It's vast, it's noisy for every company. You have 10 competitors that all kind of look and sound the same. And so it's just very frothy and overpopulated is how I, how I describe the, the industry. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. You know, there's basically been an, you know, an explosion in a number of software companies over the last two decades. But as you explained, maybe just over the last, you know, 13 years, it used to be, I think when I was at running sales at PTC, I could count maybe 60 to... <laughs> maybe a hundred software companies in the world. Of. Yeah. In the yeah. world. Yeah. Now there's 60 in a 10 square block area, of San Francisco, <laughs> you know, and many people would say that that has watered down the talent level of sales, especially in sales leadership in the software companies. What, what are your thoughts on that? I agree in some ways, but I do think the good news is that there are enough academy sales companies now that you go, okay, well, where would I want to find talent? Back in the day when you were talking about, let's just call it the pre-2010 era, the scarcity sort of era where you had lots of other kinds of companies, but not millions of software companies. I think what's happened is definitely watered down is a good term. Diluted is another term. You know, these companies are all competing for these sales execs, but I do think there are enough interesting companies like Okta and AppDynamics that spawned A plus sales leadership. If you look at AppDynamics as an example, it's funny. There are what 20 CROs out there, pretty high quality that have that pedigree. Yes. Um, that background. And so there are enough back in the day, it was like, all right, we got to go find PTC people. If we want to understand sales process and medic and enterprise, you had to have people with PTC or blade kind of DNA. Now you'd be like, all right, well, there are probably 20 companies out there that I'd say those guys have done a pretty, this company's done a really good job building a, a machine. And I want people to understand how to operate a machine and not just be salespeople. So I do think that the good news is that the industry's matured a lot, that there are a lot more places to look for quality sales execs. Yeah. I think some companies just don't look hard enough when I see some people that are CROs that were sales ops people and never sold before. I mean, I kind of shake my head and I feel sorry for the CEO who's, you know, busting their ass to try to make the company work. And it's never going to work with that type of sales leadership. So that's right. And what do you think's changed most about sales leadership as you've recruited so many sales leaders? What do you think's changed the most in the last like 10, 20 years or 13 years, as you explained? Yeah, I'd love to get your reaction to this. I think that the role is a lot more complex than it used to be. As you know, you used to sell, you just said, you know, you sell these big ticket thing, right? You deploy into an enterprise buyer. You didn't have commercial at the time. You didn't really have this bottoms up stuff. And so you didn't have multivariant um, revenue uh, flows, right? Coming from different channels, from B2B, I mean, from, from PLG, the commercial inside sales, you know, velocity stuff and enterprise. Now, most companies have a footprint in all three or many of them do. And so managing the revenue flows, think about customer success, think about pre-sales, you think about enablement, you think about rev ops, you think about instrumentation, you think about I've got to hit a forecast, which in theory would be easier with a SaaS pricing model. But now with consumption, it's almost impossible to hit a forecast, you know, to set a forecast. You really have to be way more analytical nowadays than you used to be, as you know. You used to be like, all right, I'm going to run this sales process. We're going to have a playbook. We're going to go deploy the sales organization. We're going to convert. And, um, and coffee's for closers, right? I mean, you really oriented around those big closes. And now you're really managing and orchestrating a much more complex beast because the business models have been so... Uh, rapidly evolving uh, in the last, uh, you know, 10, 10, 13 years. Does that resonate? With no, you? definitely. You have the free, you know, you have PLG. So you have the free tier, you have the paid people that convert to the paid tier. You have BDRs, you have, you have inside sales, you have, you know, mid-market salespeople, then you have your enterprise salespeople. That makes it, you know, pretty complex right there. And then you have to also interface with a lot more departments to make that work. You have to interface with the growth people. You have to interface with marketing. But I think the thing that's changed the most that I don't see most companies like really moving hard right towards is to your point on we've moved from per perpetual to subscription and now we're moving heavy to consumption. So the way that I think about it is when we sold perpetual, if I sold the site license for Perpetual, I had you basically for life as a customer. 
didn't mean I didn't care about your implementation, but I had a long time to fix it. Yep. When I moved to subscription, I have to fix that within a year, pretty close to six to seven months if we're having problems or they're going to throw me out. Yep. When I moved to consumption, especially given the fact that there's all these PLG opportunities for people to test other products, I have a week. I may have days before people give up on me and say, forget it, I'm going somewhere else. So I don't see people or companies moving hard enough to client success. What they're doing is still thinking of client success as a cost operation. They're not thinking about it as the fact that done right, changing the type of people you have from break fix people to having a concierge mentality. Like I'm gonna know what Andy Price does on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and whether or not he uses my system on Saturday and Sunday. And I have instrumentation and telemetry built into the system. I know exactly what he's using. I know if he's using it the right way or the wrong way. And I get triggered from that system to make an, a call to help Andy Price become a better user of my system. Yeah. I don't wait for break fixed. That is like dinosaur days. But I just don't see enough CEOs moving hard right towards, you know, really putting dollars into client success, which can really help renewal rates, really drive up, you know, upsells and, and get your net dollar retention numbers way up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think people have to have a, you know, it's funny, Sweetman used to say, in fact, I'll never forget this when he said, he goes, you know, strategy is overrated. He was like, what you do is you sell into customer pain and you sell into that pain every single day, 24 by seven by 365. And you never take your eye off that customer pain. And I think a lot of people go, oh, customer success, what does that mean? Oh, it means more consumption or more revenue for me, for my employer. And what that really means, as you know, is, okay, if I really have a visceral, not a visceral, it's a native understanding of my clients, my customers, business. What are they living with? What is their personal success as opposed to success measured by or defined by how much more software can I sell these people? You know, uh, you know uh, it, it, what you're really saying is, okay, how do I and turn that person to a superstar? And we both know that between Denise and Chris in the early days of Snowflake, they profile out these customers, these data science people, these data users, and then they, they figured out who the data power users were. And they made those people their obsession early days, even before yes. Frank. There. And that's why they're still all there because there's that alignment of objective, which is the customer pain, the customer pain, the customer pain, and what that means. I totally agree with you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We're still on sales leaders. You know, what are, when you are recruiting sales leaders, what are the absolute showstoppers when you hear something from somebody that's a candidate? You think, okay, I've heard that so many times. I know that that's a showstopper. Yeah. First of all, it's like, it's lack of, so if you've never seen world-class, I just have no time for you. No, no offense. You just need to go learn world-class and someone else's nickel, not my client's nickel, not my founder that I'm backing, et cetera. You have to have understood the behaviors and the day-to-day -day thought processes inherent in a world-class operation. It's, it's, as you know, it's, it becomes a sort of endemic, you know, to some people's brains. Okay. I need to seek excellence, predictability, can I run a forecast? Can I roll up data? What am I looking at? So you have to have that piece. If you've always been with chaotic sort of B-grade companies, you just, uh, it just I there's no thesis. I can't build a thesis around why you can be successful here. It doesn't go to mean you have to have all celebrity things in your bio. I actually love it when people have these teeth kicking, you know, uh, failures actually on their resume. Um, but I also think that, you know, there are a few things you can't live without people that lack curiosity about process and instrumentation, people don't ask good questions because they're just taking a job, right? And they're not actually like buying into the actual mission of the company. I think that when you think about people and their behavior in an interview process, it tells you a lot about who they are. Are they curious? Are they humble? Are they asking the right questions, but giving you a chance to ask them? So it's candidate behavior. So I'd say lack of world-class companies, Who? how do they behave in process? And of course, the referencing piece has to do with, you know, their own personal hygiene in terms of what do they do? Do they get drunk at sales kickoff meetings? Do they act like, you know, HR nightmares or what's going on with these people? Like, who are they as a human? And it's interesting because if you look around these uh, sales execs now, I mean, the sales execs back in the day, as you know, had, had, some, had quote unquote, a lot of fun. <laughs> and, and, and now it's like, these guys are kind of nerdier by design. Right. And, you know, you look at the Erica Schultz's of the world and she's just buttoned down, serious minded. It was a collegiate swimmer in an Ivy league college. You know, you, you think about these people and they're not big personalities. They're much more soft-spoken, analytical, thoughtful, 
you know, they want to get it right. They're seeking precision. They're more almost algorithmic in their thought processes. You know, Kofoid is a real business person over at um, over at Databricks. He's a very thoughtful, soft-spoken Midwesterner. No bullshit. I think that's, you know, when you think about who these people are, you're really hiring a human with a core set of skills that you hope to they'll apply to your your client to turn that into a world-class company. So those are sort of three or four things I look for. But I think also that we already talked about it. Can you bring a network? And I also believe that this is underrated out there. And I think it's a, a mistake. You have to have something you're bringing to the table. You're bringing to the party. You can't go from like an apps company that's a $10, you know, a month pricing thing on the Apple, you know, on the iStore or whatever, an app store. You've got to actually have a visceral sense for the customer and what's going on in that customer population. I think like a perfect candidate would say, okay, I understand infrastructure buyers. I understand this. And I came from, a, you know, like this guy, Brian McCarthy from Rubrics, a great example, trained at AppDynamics, Went to a hard company in ThoughtSpot. ThoughtSpot was just challenging. It was a good company. It's always been an interesting company. Just didn't quite break out. Right. Pushed him and put him into a rubric. And now the thing's 800 million in revenue. And that's because this guy's a mixture of skills. He understands how to be a street fighter. But he was also trained by some of the best sales leaders out there on yeah. process and methodology. So I feel like that's that kind of other dimension of sort of, hey, do I have a visceral sense for how to sell to an infrastructure type of buyer? It doesn't have to be the exact same buyer persona, but in the same zip code, if that makes any sense. You know, you don't want somebody that's selling HR tech to the talent team going and trying to sell against VMware or some other kind of monster, right? Big infrastructure right. thing. And right. so, so it's going to be harder. So the, mo- the amount that you, the extent that you can de-risk a hire because you think that they're going to be faster to ramp and faster to impact. So that whole time to impact concept for me is really important. It's like, if you, if you, people go, oh, I'm not going to change anything for a year. You're like, you're kidding me. Your company's going to be completely different. You'll get fired in three months if you don't want to change anything in a year. But then you contrast that with these people that drop into companies and they throw hand grenades around just because. So there's a middle ground, right? As you know, where you, you're going to come in you're going to study some stuff. Yes. And then you're going to make an impact with the sales team. It's like, wow, I'm glad they got this person. I'm going to keep, stay here. I'm going to follow this new person. I'm going to get my job done because I believe that they're going to win the war for us. I think that's the major thing. It's getting people from completely random backgrounds where you're like, they're not going to figure out what we do for a year and therefore be a no-op. Those are real risk factors in my mind. Yeah. I want to go back to what you said there um, because you pointed out that do they know what good looks like? I think that that's also important for the CEO, especially if he's a tech CEO and has never seen what a good CRO looks like. What I've done for a few of them that I've worked with is I knew that they didn't know what good looks like. So they start recruiting people and I think, oh my God, these people are never going to make it. And I turn them down and then the CEO starts to get a little mad at me. And I say, hey, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to send you two guys that are current CROs. When they're in town, they're going to come and visit you. And then they spend like a half an hour to 45 minutes with the CEO. But the CEO is never the same again. Now they understand what good looks like. And now the bar has been set a lot higher. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really helped some of these tech CEOs that really don't know what a great, you know, sales CRO looks like. It, it does. It does. But you're absolutely right. It's funny because what they'll do is I'll meet an Adam Aaron type of person. They'll go, oh, my God, well, why can't I just have that person? Right. And it was kind of like, well, you could say, well, you know, you, you know, you, you might be able to, but the question is, is what people are missing is they're just looking at resumes. They're not looking at the skills beneath the resume. Yes. Yes. How does this person operate and what is within their Swiss army knife? You know, everybody's got a Leatherman or a Swiss army knife, right? We all love those, those products, right? And it's because they're multidimensional. They're one package. They can do lots of things. And that's what you want in your sales leader. And these founders go, oh, well, then I want Adam. And if I can't find Adam, I'm going to wait a year to find an Adam. And you're like, well, you can't have Adam because you're 5 million in revenue. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like Adam pre-Octa. Sure. Let's go find Adam pre-Octa. Yes, exactly. Now, very few people have scaled up from startup to, you know, over a billion in sales. You and I know one of them, Chris Degnan. And there, you know, there's many tough transitions and demands, you know, placed on that CRO when they're scaling. And like we talked about before, there's different, different transition points. In your mind, why do you think it is that most people don't scale? If I think about, I don't really think about the people that flame out a ton. I, I'd like to, just to get some pattern recognition. When I think about the people that are uh, flaming out is because they didn't care. If, if you look at the, sorry, there's, there's a lot of, let me just touch on a couple of key things. 
If you game the comp system, you're going to be outed eventually. Okay. I won't name names, but one person I know got blown out of a company at a hundred million because he kept sandbagging. And then the whole team would miraculously blow their number out of the water. And then everybody would get comped to an absurd level, which burns up a lot of equity capital, as you know. Yeah. Well, that's, and, un- that's almost unethical. Yeah, it is. I really believe it is. But a lot of these founders, as you, as you said earlier, you know, they just, they're not trained themselves. And they don't load their boards up with operators typically. So they've got a bunch of VCs trying to tell them, well, look out for this, look out for that. But honestly, they're blind spots. And so I think what happens is they get surprised. And so I think when, when you know, sales execs are, when they think too much about the team and feeding the team and how does the team get comped and how do I make my team a cult and how do they follow me through war? Sometimes they'll say, well, let's be transactional, just give them more money and then they'll follow me longer, right? As you know, problem is that behavior eventually gets outed and then it becomes sort of, well, the team has a taint to them, right? There's a stain on the sales team because we can't trust them because they're a me first team and they're not thinking about the construct of the company and the entity that we're trying to build in, which is a world-class machine that no individual should hijack as their own personal objective, right? Like you shouldn't be thinking, oh, I'm here at this employer to maximize my own personal outcomes, right? It's like, if I'm not part of something awesome, the entire thing is awesome, then you're missing out, right? That, that, that The mindset of the latter is, is highly preferred. And so I think when these sales organizations, sales leaders start to think about the sales team only in a myopic way, that's when a lot of them start to vibrate and then they get blown out or when they're not good team people, if they abuse the marketing person, for example, or throw stuff over the wallet, engineering a product and a kind of random. So I guess what I'd say in summary is that when they're not intentional, when they're not thinking about things from a design perspective, like, okay, bigger picture, we are trying to do this as a company and everything you do is within that framework of, okay, what is best for this company's outcome? You know, I, one of the things I love about Degnan is that, you know, he took this learn it all approach. So, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to soak up as much information. It was, you never questioned whether he had snowflakes interests at heart versus right. his own. And I really appreciated that uh, very much in him. And if you look at these long-term sales leaders, they all have that in common. They believed that they were there to serve the company. The company wasn't there to serve them. Yeah. But don't you think, I mean, I want to go back to what you said earlier. It could be the candidate and it also can be the CRO, um, the CEO and the board who don't properly evaluate who the first CRO really is. Yeah. And they already see severe limitations in the person, yet they're in a rush and they jam this person in the job almost knowing full well, they're never going to make it past, as you would pointed out earlier, $10 million. And now they got a whole nother problem. Instead of really, really for that first CRO, taking your time and really making sure you have somebody that you think could last you at least up to a hundred million. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you look around sales recruiting, you know, it's funny because you could just say to founders, ask these 10 questions of every candidate that that actually doesn't happen a lot. When you talk, talk to these founders and you're like, why, what, what happened? Why'd you hire that person? Like, Oh, cause the VC threw him over the over the wall and they said they were good. And so I hired him. Like, yeah, but the VC the may VC not know to your earlier point is maybe they were selling some commodity to chipmunks in a cubicle and now they got to sell, <laughs> you know, million dollar software to C level executives. It's a completely different sale. Absolutely right. I've seen that too, Andy. I've seen a lot of VCs on the boards that I've been on with say, oh, well, this person from XYZ company, this is what they do. And I'd say, well, we have a different market, a different persona that we sell to, different price point, 250,000 versus 10,000. You know, they, they have to learn all the political atmosphere. They have to be able to get high. They have to build cost justifications. This person selling the $10,000 widgets never done those things before. Absolutely right. And I think what happens is founders should really think through this higher. Look, we all know that product and engineering and, and marketing are all really, really important too. Sales is where your biggest exposure is, as you well know. And if you get, you know, I think that what happens is founders should go slow to go fast. If you should stop and say, okay, what am I looking for? How will I know that person when I see them? And then what happens is they just go into turbo sales mode, sales, sales, sales. And that occupies, you know, if you think about founders, man, when they interview people, it's most often that they think their role is to sell that person because that's just what they know. They know how to sell their dream. God love Correct. them. But they're not buying. And so they don't get enough out of the first conversation to really know, hey, what is this person? Does this person actually have the humility to sell themselves to me and explain to me what their strengths and weaknesses are? And, and then I have to get into the technical details about 
How do they operate and understand, is there a screening mechanism by which I can filter out people that are unlikely to succeed here and hone in on the people that are? And so they don't stay true to a true North job description. I just think job descriptions, people think that's old school. I think it's really important. Actually, I'm pushing my whole uh, search firm to go back, double down on that job description and keep that as your true North. It could be five bullet points. Can they do these five things inside the next 18 to 24 months, presumptively being able to do 10 more in the you know, 18, 24 months after that? But we got to get this foundation built. And if, if they have the skills to build that foundation, they should be a candidate. If they do not, they should not. And then be very, very targeted and filtered as opposed to, oh, how many people can I talk to to quote, unquote, shop the market? You want to shop the market? Think about this metaphor. Would you rather shop at, at, at Walmart or Dean and DeLuca? Yeah, right. <laughs> you want the place with less supply, but it's all good. All to, I'm going to get lost in these aisles, looking at a bunch of random stuff, and I'm just going just what just to burn time and you know and 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 shop a bunch of volume low grade crap. No, that's not a smart move at all. You don't you wouldn't want to shop that way. So why would you recruit that way? That's why I think building a criteria that's really down to the skills, the knowledge, and most importantly, the characteristics of the person. That and really nailing that and asking open-ended questions around each and every one of those elements, that's really the way to get it get it done, I think. I totally agree. And if you can't do that, well, either way, even if you can do that, as you well know, the number one thing, back-channeling the crap out of people. Totally. You have to know, like, what is, does this person, you know, hate marketing people and just abuse them just because they're insecure or some other issue? You have to know what you're getting. What did this person actually do? Oh, the company was on fire, but the sales exec was kind of along for the ride. There's a lot of that out there. And can this team switch from a work from a peacetime environment to a wartime footing, right? And really understand that this is not an order taking thing. And you actually have to talk to a finance person every five minutes to justify the sales and the cost. And it's a harder, higher friction environment now than it was. And so how can people adapt to that? And I think, you know, that, that, uh, that understanding who this person really is and back channeling, I could argue that of success, you'd say, well, probably 25% is predicated on the interview process and the evaluation and criteria screen and what have you, probably 75% is, do you really have the book on this person? There's a book on all of us. Yeah, sure. Of course. Perfect. As you know. And so the question is, is like, what's the real book on this person? Can I live with the fact that they're not perfect, but am I clue? Do they, am I cluing in on the things that I know they bring to the table such that I can sleep at night knowing I just hired a person that's going to probably make or break my company. Yeah. Let's switch gears just a little bit because you've been in the industry a long time. You've seen sales go to market issues. And um, what are some of the latest trends in sales that you've seen that salespeople should be aware of and maybe even adopt? Or, you know, what are you seeing out there? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that what happened in the last couple of years is that people realized that if they didn't build an enterprise muscle, they're in trouble because the mid-market is churning like crazy, as you know. And so I think what happens, right. people are relying on this self-serve PLG, mid-market stuff, velocity, 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 and I'll get to enterprise. But what's happened in the last couple of years is people realize, wow, we looked down on the enterprise sales muscle for so many years because it was less harder and you kind of thought that's where old school people were. That was not correct. And so what's happening is now you have this gigantic industry-wide scramble for enterprise talent and it's kind of enterprise people that I know are like, okay, yeah, you should have thought about this a long time ago. And the, um, the, the, the sales needs have gone from bottoms up to you better know how to sell to a real buyer. And if you don't, then you're not going to succeed. And I think that's been the major evolution in the last couple of years. It's almost like a wake up call, if you will. Yeah. I just had a guy on the podcast like two weeks ago named Oliver J. He calls it the PLG trap because to your point, they get, they get up to maybe, maybe even a hundred million in PLG and, and inside sales. And then all of a sudden they realize, wow, we just are not going to scale. I mean, we, we have to go enterprise. But then the company doesn't have the DNA. They don't have the right attitude. They don't have the right resources or processes in place. And they don't want to pay. They still are cheap and they don't want to pay these enterprise salespeople, even though they know that's what they need. Absolutely. And they fall into this PLG trap and then they're in trouble. Exactly. And, you know, the other thing is, is they don't know who their customers are. Like, as you know, if you, you know, okay, Bank of America uses us for these reasons in these departments and not in these departments. Why is that? How come we can't go horizontally within this customer? And, and then maybe it's okay to saying, okay, of, of the 5,000 customers we have, what are the patterns that are, we now know are repeatable, which therefore means efficient. 
And so we're all seeking efficiency. That's the, the other thing about sales, as you know, it's all about efficiency, cost efficiency. You can't just use these uh, capacity-driven sales you know, uh, expansion models anymore because people will triple click on that in the investing community. Finally, investor community is getting a little bit more disciplined and starting to ask hard questions about how are you fueling this growth? Is this manufactured by way too many reps that are burning massive amounts of capital and not making, you know, the attainment uh, metrics are pretty anemic. I think that's really changing pretty fast too. Do you actually have a business plan around your sales organization? Will the sales organization generate or burn cash indefinitely? Right. Right. Let's talk about you a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> many My years least favorite topic. <laughs> it's the only time i can get you to stop in your tracks no through your many years of experience what is now ingrained in andy's dna that when you look back 20 years ago you were like ah you know that's kind of important but you didn't see that how really important it was and now it's in your dna yeah i appreciate the question i think you know <laughs> You know, when you're younger, you just want near-term results. Okay, I want to close this search. I want to make this money. I want to look like a star for five minutes. And then, you know, when you think about when you're older, as you know, you're just happy to be, you're, you're kind of happy to be here. You're, you're grateful. You're still alive. You're grateful to be able to make a contribution. You just find yourself a lot more grateful and you find yourself a lot more responsibility. The outcomes are very real, as you know. And so you have to really think about, you're trying to take ownership of these wins and losses. The losses are the ones I think about a lot more than the wins. And so I think that you really feel a lot of guilt about, hey, this didn't work out. What could we have done better? What can we do better? And you get almost obsessive about that. So I I think that when you really think about your mission, you're really focused on mission later in life. You've made your money. That's not the thing. It's about, hey, what's my legacy? Am I really doing the best work for founders? Is everything we do geared towards their success? And your customer becomes a god in a way. You know, our customers are the founders that we work with. They're not the VCs. They're not anybody else's the founders that we're trying to build around. And I think the uh, true obsession with them and their long-term success, I think that's the big difference. You know, you know, I would also say I was a complete pain in the ass at a younger age. I'm less of a pain in the ass now, I think, but I think, you know, you kind of grow up and get a little bit more thoughtful as your days in front of you are fewer than the days behind you. Um, yeah. I think that's, that's a, that's a, that's a life revelation that I encourage people to get to where you're more like more intentional, more thoughtful, more grateful. Well, also, what you're saying is it's changed from a me perspective to more of a larger perspective on how I'm really helping my customers. And I think that same thing happens in leadership, where when you're younger, it's more about me. And then you realize, if I'm really going to be successful, the only way I'm going to be successful is if I help my team be super successful. If they max out on their comp plans, I'll max out on mine. If they're all getting promoted, it means I'm getting promoted. So absolutely, and you got to look. It's a change in perspective. Absolutely, you got to look across the marketing people. Be like, how can I lift them up? Can I make them better? Can I make the product team better? Can I make the engineering team better? Can I create connectivity around the whole company, which the company is a delicate ecosystem. It is fraught with risk. We can get blown up any minute, even if we're Salesforce, we can get blown up. And having this kind of shared mission across your own functional peers, I think that's really, really, really key, as you know, too. To being a good citizen is, I think, important. Where yeah. I know it's all cliche, but there's no I in team, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is, is that the thing will not function if you have a world-class sales organization that isn't bringing along everybody you know, with them. What's the number one thing you had to learn about you? Humility. Humility, yeah. Yeah, that's big. Yeah, it's yeah. big. And being comfortable with it and learning from it. Yeah, embracing it. Yeah. And laughing. Learn how to laugh at yourself from the yes. belt, from the <laughs> <Yeah>. gut. <laughs> exactly. Really good life skill. Be like, you're not that important. <laughs> no, you're not. Now, what did you what is the number one thing you think you had to learn about other other people? Just who they are as a human. You know, like I said, you know, resume, you express about resume because that's the easy part. Okay. Well, what has this person done on paper? Is that easy to evaluate? Like, what is this person? Who is this person in their soul? You don't need to know whether their mom got along with their grandma or whatever. You really don't need to know that really. Um, but I do think you need to know, okay, what, who, who, what's, what's this person? What is this human that I'm planting in this other ecosystem, which is this company, which again is kind of delicate by design, even at any stage, everything is vulnerable, as you know, in tech, you can go from here to zero in a hurry and um, everything's high impact. And I think you, you know, really taking the time to figure out 
you know, what's in this person's soul? What's in their brain? How do they think? How do they operate? How are they going to behave? Um, and when things get tough, can they adapt and be a good citizen and have some class and, you know, be, be a normal, be an adult and not a destructive uh, metastasizing cancer cell in this ecosystem? That's obviously what you want to think about is can they fit and make the organism better? Yeah, I think that's so true. I, I had learned to spend my first 30 to 40 minutes of any interview, not on the resume, but on their characteristics. I would take the resume, put it on the table upside down. And I just wanted to know about Andy Price. That's it. And some people are not very comfortable with that, you know, but that's because at the end of the day, someone could have great skills and great knowledge. But what's the thing that makes you want to get them out of the company is something that you discover as a character flaw six to months to nine months later. And I want to discover all those things now, you know, yeah. and you know not what? only the negatives, but all the positives too. Exactly. I mean, we all have flaws. I think the other idea oh, sure. is like, all right, so how does that person cope with their flaws and how do those flaws manifest? Because you know what? Some of those flaws might actually be superpowers. Yes. You know? Yeah. A lot of things are double-edged swords. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you think was the most difficult thing you had to adapt to over time? Because you had to adapt. You didn't last in this role of 30 years, start your own two, two companies and not adapt. Yeah, I think you have to. I think what happens is you, you have to adapt from this mindset of how much money can I make? How fast can I make it? Mindset to what is my existential purpose? I know that sounds cliched or corny to pretty much anybody who would listen. But, you know, I really do believe in that. I think you have to because, you know, after a while, you're like, OK, why am I getting up at 530 in the morning every day? And why do I think about my clients at three o'clock in the morning? I don't need them financially. But it's actually liberating because you're like, okay, now I have a higher calling. And uh, adapting from a transactional, how do I build my balance sheet, secure my kids' futures, make sure they're going to go to college. Those are very important existential Maslow hierarchy things. But I do think that there's a certain point where you have to switch from that existential stuff to, I mean, sorry, the 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 day-to-day needs-based things, right? The financial things to a, how do I have something that pulls me out of bed really hard that's way beyond the almighty dollar that's, you know, that's not financial. And I think making that uh, switch gives you longevity and stamina. I think that what happens is you start to burn out if it's just all about the money. I've already done that before. You know, you hit the wall at a certain point. You're like, I'm just, okay, now I have the money, but I don't have the purpose. And then you fall apart. And then I think a lot of people do, they fall apart in their midlife because they sit there and they go, okay, well, what is this purpose? It's the classic midlife crisis. But I think people right. have mid-career crises too, all right. the time. It's part of the whole construct. It's the same thing. And it's a different shade, but it's basically the same concept. And so can you get, can you build that existential purpose early in your career to, to make stamina an inert thing and avoid the blow up? I think that's an important thing for young people to think about and plan for. Is there, it's really hard to do to change that ever evolving perspective on things. But to your point, if it's only about the money, it's never going to last, right? It has to be about something much bigger than the money. And if you and if you can get that perspective and believe in that perspective, the money will follow. Absolutely. It'll follow. It will flow a lot more freely, too, as you become more Zen about the whole thing. And you really are focusing on big picture, but delivering your ground game. That's important delta. Right. As you know, you can't just go big picture and be all theoretical and then I could not get anything done. If your ground game isn't better than ever, your theoretical stuff is going to fall apart, as you know. Yeah. Let me leave you one final question. Any preliminary thoughts on how AI might change the recruiting industry? I think as soon as the customer, i.e. me, really embraces how they would use technology to de-risk a hire, I think that's going to be a moment that's very similar. I've been waiting for a bunch of MIT geniuses to come out and not do Dropbox or Amplitude or one of these companies where they, they build some next generation software thing, but they actually say, wait a second, how can I score human risk algorithmically? That would be really interesting. Mm-hmm. And on the flip side, how can, how, can you, how can you say, well, this candidate based on these variables and there are many variables, all of us, as you know, we're all complicated beasts, right? with lots of variables inherent to ourselves that we're bringing to the table and sort of, can you get enough of a data set together to score success or failure in a meaningful enough way that AI would change the game and just direct all of us? I think that would be a really nice moment for the industry. And I'm looking forward to those. It could be a little scary though, right, Andy? I mean, at the end of the day, like you said, there's some people that might have a 
a characteristics that originally designed, you think it's a flaw, but it's a double-edged sword and it makes them successful at the same time might piss people off inside the company. Absolutely. So, so you have to, you have to really be able to weigh those things. The other thing is I've seen people that just fit right into my, let's say program and my processes and all that type of stuff. But then I've always had these people that I call the artists, like four or five of them that I can think of just in the last company I was at where they're going to do things that, you know, nobody else can do. They do these things subconsciously because they're artists. They get the biggest deals, but they're not going to fit into the routines of process and measurement and all that stuff. They don't need those, that type of drive. They need to be able to, they free flow. So That's maybe right. AI would say, this guy's never going to make it in that system, yet I'd, I still hired them. I, I agree with you. They're still some of the most successful people that I hired. So they're, I think we'd have to be really careful on on how that thing gets weighed, you know? I totally agree with you. I don't think the machines can accommodate for those X doctors that people are, that you're that you're alluding to. I think what's going to happen with the machines, the machines will help us curate who we should go after more uh, precisely. I think that's what's going to happen. It's like, it's more like the front end of the process. Like, all right, of the 10,000 software companies in this 415 area code, how many of them are relevant to this situation? Boom. And you have an instantaneous Heart, you know, hit list of right. ten companies, right? That they're the A plus, you know, things that you want to get to. And I think that time to insight will be shortened in terms yeah. of where you should look for the talent. But I agree with that. I don't believe that the subjectivity that you have to have in order to say this person brings the X doctor, and I knew it when I saw it, and it came out of a conversation. I don't believe that, that the machines are going to be anywhere near that capability for a very long time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, Andy Price, thank you, man. It's been a pretty good conversation. It's a quick hour. Great to thank see you, you very so much. Enjoyed it. And thank you for everything you're doing for the ecosystem. Genuinely appreciate it, sir. Yeah. And um, congrats on artisanal ventures and artisanal talent. And I hope you're super successful with that. Thanks. So thank you very much. Appreciate Thanks, it. Sir. Have a great week. All right. And thanks everyone for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.